Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, uh, I guess you may have wondered what happened to me, uh, since in my previous podcast I said that I'd be getting this out in a day or so. Well, I uh, did finish the edit of this talk the next day, and as I was preparing to record these remarks, the screen on my little Asus uh, computer, my little netbook, well, it just kind of burned out, I guess. And uh, in any event, it quit working, and that was the machine I was using to FTP these podcasts to the net. Now, I'll spare you all the details, but after much investigation and soul-searching, it became obvious that I was going to have to reinstall Windows on my main machine if I wanted to get back to podcasting. However, uh, I decided that if I had to install a new operating system, that maybe it was time to dump Microsoft once and for all. So, uh, I am now very pleased to tell you that while it took me several days to make my decision, it took less than an hour for me to install the Ubuntu uh, version of Linux and uh, connect my machine to the net. I was not only amazed at how simple and seamless the procedure was, but I'm completely blown away at how much fun it is to use this machine with uh, such a lightweight and extremely fast operating system running it. Uh, I guess this is probably the first time since I switched from DOS to Windows many years ago that I've had so much pleasure in using a computer. And on top of that, uh, my machine is at least twice as fast as it was when I was running under Windows. So uh, my sincere thanks goes out to our fellow saloners who offered to help, and in particular to those who have been recommending Ubuntu and Linux for some time now. I finally see what you mean. <laughs> and with their 13.04 release, uh, Ubuntu, uh, to me, is the best operating system that I've ever found. So thanks for sticking around while I took care of these little techie details, and now it's time to get back to where we left off here in the salon. But why am I still talking, you say? Well, you're right. So let's get on with the final segment of a workshop led by Terrence McKenna in August of 1993 and join him and his friends in their Sunday morning wrap-up session. The Maya established their own civilization in a not very interesting part of their own calendar. Not at the beginning, but sort of two-thirds of the way through. So did, it looks as though they counted forward to an end date rather than just had an establishment date. And how they were able to count forward that many thousands of years to a solstice without losing any time or being off even by a day is hard to figure. Uh, I made a sort of interesting discovery just a few weeks ago with a program called Voyager. I don't think we discussed this, did we? There's a program called Voyager which lets you view anywhere in the solar system from 10,000 years in the past to 10,000 years in the future. So I typed in the uh, longitude and latitude of La Chorrera, December 21st, 2012 AD. I knew that the solstice the exact moment of the solstice is 11.18 a.m. Greenwich. So I knew then that that was 6.18 a.m. local time at La Chorrera. I put in all these coordinates and saw that the sun, if you turn and look east, 
along the equator, the sun has risen just t uh, about 12 minutes before. And uh, I went up to the menu and chose the ecliptic, and it slashed down through it as it would, because the sun defi is, defines the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the path the sun follows. But then I went up and chose define the galactic ecliptic, and it drew a line which made crosshairs that exactly caught the sun in the crosshairs. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, if you, those of you who aren't astrologers or astronomers, let me explain what this, what's going on. This is what's called a heliacal rising. And what is happening is that the, the galactic center, which is where the plane of the ecliptic and the plane of the galactic ecliptic cross each other at 28 degrees Sagittarius on the cusp of Capricorn. There, uh, that point, the galactic center, is w rising at the exact moment of the rising of the sun. That's called a heliacal rising. And this heliacal rising is, in this case, occurring on the winter solstice. And so then you ask yourself, as you do with any such astrological configuration, how often does this occur? Using Newtonian mechanics, where you simply propagate Newtonian laws backward through time infinitely, the answer is it happens once every 26,000 years because it's a phenomenon that depends on the equinoctial great year of precession. You all know that this happens? Okay. Now, if you, if you use modern mathematics to calculate how often this happens, where you put in the chaotic factor into these orbits, you discover that this doesn't happen once every 26,000 years. It happens once only in all eternity. <laughs> because in orbital calculation back beyond about 20,000 years, uncertainty accumulates in these calculations and they are not reliable. The, the solar system itself is chaotic. I think someone is processing, as they say <laughs> around here. <laughs> um, no, wait, let me see if I want to say... Oh, I know, so... Just the last thing on that, if, if any of you are interested in that, and it's an area that I'm interested in because I don't quite understand what all this means, but there's a book called Hamlet's Mill which deals with uh, this old, old myth of galactic, uh, uh, worldwide myths of the galaxy. Uh, in the Paleolithic era. And there's a lot about this notion in many cultures that there are these gates, they, you know, conceptually gates, which need to all align themselves. And then there's some kind of, of straight shot. Uh, and you felt that the uh, Mayan calendar out of uh, that uh, lineup so accurately? Well, they end their calendar on this particular solstice. Oh, I know what I wanted to say about this, because I don't want it to leave it. It's a real question, because the galactic center as a concept was not defined for Western science until the early 1960s. So how could the Maya 
have locked in on a concept so abstruse as it means you would have to know there is a galaxy and so <laughs> forth and so on. The only explanation I can come up with for that, which maybe shows my ability to explain everything by one hypothesis, uh, <laughs> is that perhaps there is a drug which allows you to see at the far infrared end of the spectrum so that instead of hypothesizing that the Maya had a super advanced mathematics and a radio telescope and all this fancy equipment, maybe it was simply that they had a drug that when you look at the night sky in the direction of Sagittarius, there's an enormous pulsing thing in the sky which you then could, because you can see it in this drugged state, calculate when it would be eclipsed by certain bodies. seems to me a more economical, because it's a real thing to explain how they could have uh, known this. And then the question, what does it mean? You know, there are in many cultures, the Norse culture and the Hindu and so forth, this idea that that the, the world exists for a finite time and then the stars return to like an original setting and it's sort of like an alarm clock after it has gone through one complete cycle and it returns to the original setting then the the world disappears or is destroyed or the gods come or anyway it points the end of a cosmic cycle and I find that this whole thing is you haven't known me my whole life, so it's hard for you to deconstruct it. But this is not my style of thinking. I mean, I'm repelled by the particularity and the messianism and the counter-logical uh, nature of it. And yet, attempting to objectively describe the content of the psychedelic experience and the map of the human mind that it makes visible, this is the message that I get. Uh, It's as general or as specific as you want. I mean, it's as general as everything is going to change soon, and it's as specific as, you know, these computer programs that show you not only the exact moment when it's going to change, but the exact numerical valuation of every moment in the entire history of the cosmos back a trillion years preceding it. So it's as though in the plants or in nature or in the human mind, depending just on where your depth of focus is, uh, is this pattern, which is you know, can be as generally stated as I said, everything will tr- is in the process of transforming or as specifically stated as a mathematical formalism. And we, we've lost it. History has been the pursuit of a, of a false god, the god of stability, the god of permanence, the god of the unchanging, and we've become just neurotic on this subject. Yeah. You mentioned uh, last night one of the big things is we sort of understand the whole process of uh, our thinking process is off. It's like wrong. And then this morning I have nothing last. And that's a basic truth, but we all cling to building uh, uh, visions or projects and ideas that we can cling to and hold on to. We try to make reality more structured and solid. 
And what's happening all around us is it's like falling down in a way. Like the structured society you're saying in the next, I think 1996, will start crumbling. It's, it is crumbling now, but all that solidness everyone's built is... Uh, security. Right, security, in a way, is, and all you realize is nothing does last. It's sort of just, uh, you're experiencing life. Well, it's a, in a sense, the bottom line of this, from a feeling and a heart place, is that we're, what's being said here is reclaim experience. Do not dwell in the mistakes of the past. Do not lose yourself in the castles of the future. And do not give your authenticity away to experts, gurus, government commissions, bosses, wives, mates. Uh, Take back your mind and your body and begin to... uh, Engage with the fact that you are alive, you are going to die. Nobody knows what being alive is. Nobody knows what dying is. Uh, You're involved in um, a, a mysterious engagement where every living moment presents you with mystery, opportunity, and wonder. There is no mundane... Uh, dimension, really, if you have the eyes to see it, it's, uh, it's all transcendental. And every, every uh, object, a leaf, a bird, a pebble, everything leads back to the basic questions. Everything is the stone. I mean, the stone is present. It's a matter of you being present for the stone. Yeah. I'm not a great spiritual searcher, but I did a vision quest once, you know, where you, you traumatize yourself to get into vision. And the thing, one of the things that I realized that hit me home was that life is chaos, and that in the human mind, even our, our walls are built to give ourselves a sense of stability, to protect ourselves, that our foundations, we created a sense of this stability that really doesn't exist. It's our need. Well, the quest for permanence. You know, and in by having children, this is a pretty good way to do it because you've actually got a shot at a billion years uh, with a lot of luck. But building uh, houses on the slopes of Hawaiian volcanoes uh, is probably uh, not something. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole different dimension. It's not, uh, I mean, that's how you imagine it. Well, uh, yes, I mean, I've imagined it many different ways, and according to how recently I've been loaded, I take different positions. People are pushing me, I think, because they don't want me to disgrace myself, toward a soft version, something like that we all make nice and clean up the earth. You know, no, no, no. It's something I because see it's it's I'm convinced, and I think the time wave argues for this. And like looking at the prediction of the cometary impact on Jupiter next July, how can you argue then that this wave is generated out of human biology or culture? It's not. It's not even generated out of biology if it's predicting a cometary impact on the Jovian surface. Presumably no biology is involved. We're talking about what we're seeing is the laws of physics themselves 
beginning to go into some kind of crisis. It's not no blame for human beings. We are the witnesses and we were somehow called forth by this, but the laws of physics are are going into crisis. This is why I urge people to look at Alfred North Whitehead, who was a very scientific and mathematically grounded thinker and who talked about what he called sudden shifts of epochs. His philosophy made a place for sudden shifts of epochs. And what that means is, you know, the speed of light drops by half over 24 hours or the charge of the electron uh, is rearranged because even though, you know, one of the peculiar properties of a fractal universe is almost all the transitions are very smooth. But every once in a while you come around the corner and there's a transition that just sidewinds you because you're crossing over one of these nodes at the highest level of the structure. And uh, then profound things occur, yeah. So the shamanic ethos that you talked about in the, um, in the description of this this weekend, is that what you mean by the um, commitment to direct experience? Yeah, the commitment to direct experience and then the commitment to to build a language for this, to build a culture. The suppression of psychedelics has had the unfortunate effect of making it impossible for us to build a linguistically coherent community and have a shared body of experience because, you know, you can't just say this stuff to everybody. So, you know, to put it in very simple, understandable terms, coming out of the closet on psychedelics should be part of the political agenda. Psychedelics should not be classed with other drugs, and certainly the Schedule One category, which seems to be reserved only for very hard narcotics and all psychedelics. Uh, that's just a cockamamie mm-hmm. categorization, and it's the the whole society is phobic of the mind, terrified of the unconscious, terrified of dissolving the ego, uh, very anxious if you dissolve your ego. Uh, you know, it's a real issue. It's a taboo. Uh, it's very thoroughly a taboo. Yeah. Does a commitment to uh, direct experience preclude uh, metaphysical perspective for you? No, but it, uh, the direct datum for metaphysical speculation should be one's own experience. If you've studied modern philosophy, uh, I think you discover that the, it's very clear that all you can rely on is your senses. You can't rely on what anybody tells you. You can't rely on anything that you, you know, you, the real laboratory bench for philosophy is you looking at your mind and examining it and trying to make judgments about it, reclaiming experience. And the political consequences of reclaiming experience are that far more than we realize, we're embedded in a hierarchy of declension where information is distributed over McNeil Lehrer and Time Magazine and CNN, and we, the serfs down in the valleys, 
are the the grateful recipients of the news. You see? And now, for all you jerks out there, the news. And uh, uh, and so we we don't believe anything of our own experience. We wait to be told. You know that a White House commission or a blue ribbon uh, group. Yeah, Barry. Well, I think of history as this prison. I mean, I would go with Stefan Dedalus, who said, history is the nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. That's the consequence of bad metaphysic. Earlier you called it a misunderstanding, and I'm saying that you have to deal with, in this sense, it is all about metaphysics. Well, but that works. I mean, if you think of it as a misunderstanding, then the di- the dissolving of the prison of Gnostic confinement was an act of contact with the the higher hidden order of things be- behind appearances. I mean, that was the Gnostic epiphany. And I would say, if history is the prison, then psychedelic the psychedelic experience is the epiphany of dissolution that frees. And then you see eternity. You see the Platonic, uh, you know, time time as the moving image of eternity. The mystery is revealed. That's this whole thing about how a shaman is somebody who has seen the end. That's all, and that's what confers this wisdom: is having seen the end. It, it's just it's kind of ultimate experience. And then you take your place. You go back to your group and take your place and perform your function. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've had experiences of talking with other um, shamanic teachers who also talk about this. I know Henry Tyler, who is an Arapaho medicine man and uh, has that 2,000-year-old shamanic tradition, he says that there's a time coming. He doesn't say 2012, but he says soon, like in the next decade or so, when life is will not be as we know it at all. We won't eat the same food at all. So I've heard that from him, and I'm wondering if you've heard it. There's a, there are about, I made a list of them once. There are about five or six different sources of this 2012 thing. There are some Hasids in Israel who have decided that July 2012, something is going to happen. Uh, the Mayan calendar, my thing... Something else. This, the some of these Indian prophecies. Of course, you see, my theory would explain this because what's happening, it would say, is that as we get closer and closer to the transcendental object, it gives off what I call scintilla. They're like sparks or little reflections that ricochet backward through time. And so you take a psychedelic or you have a dream and then you say, you know, I had this dream and there were flying saucers and it was the end of the world and they were taking millions of people off the planet while there was some kind of an adjustment. Well, I would call that a typical transcendental object anticipation dream where your dream is not true. That isn't how it's going to happen. The human mind cannot encompass how it's going to happen. But that's a little fable about how it's going to happen. You know, some of you may know Arthur C. Clarke's wonderful book, Childhood's End. If you've never read this, it's wonderful. And it's about the end of the world. 
it's an, a believable scenario for how it could in fact be transformed and it's just spine chilling it's wonderful childhood's end by arthur c Clarke, and yet i think it's a very it too is simply a fable the real thing will be beyond your wildest imaginings literally i mean it's messianic return it's flying saucer invasion it's gaian revelation it's all that and more and more and more because eventually you know the machinery of anticipation fails and uh, you just say, you know, it's more, it's more than we bargained for. It's the jackpot. Yes, you wanted to say something. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on psychedelic drugs and um, levels of uh, maturity uh, in children, for example. There must, are there, are there, in your knowledge, are there cultures where at a particular age, not three, maybe it's five, maybe it's 15, when are... Uh, when are, are humans who are allowed to be exposed to these chemicals and, and assumedly positively indoctrinated? Well, among the Aguaruna Hivaro in Ecuador, they put ayahuasca on the mother's nipples the third day after birth. Uh, so they quickly establish a, a, at least a chemical recognition, you know, in the immune system. Um, you know, it's an important question. What do you tell your kids about drugs? And I thrashed around about this. I have two kids, a 15-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, and this question comes up in the, in the family and at these groups a lot. I think all you can do is you have to tell the truth. You have to just lay it out and educate them. It's, you know, the one place where you can actually function as a parent because the schools are lying. And you just say, you know, this is part of life. You're going to have to make choices. There are dozens of drugs. They are associated with different lifestyles, risk levels, sensations, uh, kinds of people. And, uh, and the main thing, I think, to avoid is hypocrisy. I mean, I think it's really weird people who say, oh, we can't smoke dope till the children go to bed. You know, I mean, this is weird. I mean, first of all, the children know, and what they know is that you're conflicted and giving off different signals about it. And, you know, if you do, if there are drugs you do that you wouldn't want your children to see you doing, you shouldn't be doing those drugs. That's a perfect litmus test, you when know. Do when, do when, when do they get Wait, to? When do they get to? Is age 12? Uh... Well, what drug are we talking about? Here? Well, the first thing to recognize is that it's not up to you. That if you wait too long, then they'll just present you with feet accompli. <laughs> so if you say, you know, I think it would really be good if you'd wait till you're 15 to do my, and say, yeah, right, uh, okay, and then you find out that it was done. Sometime between 13 and 16, they're going to sort it out. It's right up there with sex. And the thing to do, I think, is to really say, is to say, you know, this is a very adult business and you can get into trouble of all different kinds and here's the kinds of trouble you can get into. I think, I mean, my son is surrounded by <laughs> cautionary tales and, you know, try to 
warn him that the great age of hashish smuggling lies uh, in the 14th century and shouldn't be duplicated. Picture your thought. Oh, I say we're pretty tight. I mean, we're pretty tight. I mean, we live together as sort of bachelor roommates and uh, and try to not get into conflicts over women. And, uh, <laughs> but we like the same kind of music. And, you know, it's done me no harm with my son to get into this rave club, staying up all night to... Uh, London, New York, Frankfurt scene because he he just loves that. Uh, And it amazes me. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I was socially terrified. And I remember I used to never go to the canteen dances because I knew there were these enormous guys who would just stomp me. I used to lurk in the park across the street and watch them going to and from the canteen because... I couldn't socially show my face. So it's a late flowering adolescence that is perfectly in synchrony with my son. (laughs) (laughs) Do you believe that theory that some some people in the 60s uh, will tell you that because they were uh, heads that their children have more of a chance to be heads if you think it's all a social thing? Well, uh, to me, that's this issue. This is a real hard issue, I think, for parents, and to some degree deeper even and harder than the drug issue. And that is, I think I can speak for most people here and say, you know, we are alienated intellectuals of some sort. And alienation is ipso facto not such a cool thing to be. It means that you're you know, constantly aware of the failings and the betrayals and the, you know, it's alienation. And we're alienated intellectuals. Well, so then you have kids and you see, well, there seem to be only two paths open. They can become nitwits or they can become alienated intellectuals. <laughs> and, and which do you want for your children? Do you, do you want them to be perfectly satisfied with a house on the cliffs and two cars in the garage and their position at the advertising agency? Or do you want them to be like you, haunted and uh, always in conflict and never able to come to terms with what... That's a big problem. And I, I want to come clean and say I have a 15-year-old daughter who hears all this stuff about it. And I've had to come to terms with that. And it's like... I've said this to her and probably alienated. Do you want to be, a, you know, when she's totally uninformed, do you want to be another stupid American or do you want to be alienated like your father? <laughs> <laughs> and she says, I'll take stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my daughter, my daughter is uh, very, uh, not conservative exactly, but but she looks upon me differently than Finn does, I think, although she's only 12, we'll see what it does to her to go go through all that but that's a real problem i don't think i don't i don't regret my alienation i it's hard for people sometimes to understand where i'm coming from like a lot of people will go through a weekend like this and one of the rare resistances as i get is people say your vision is so dark 
which is completely puzzling to me because it's the most optimistic vision conceivable, by, not only by me, but by anybody. I mean, I say that heaven is 18 years away, and they accuse me of pessimism. I mean, uh, so what that tells me is that the word transformation is so threatening to some people that no matter, yeah, change, that no matter how much you talk about how great it's going to be, all they come away with is, oh boy, big change. It's the way you, 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 you sort of describe certain analogies. I mean, when you're talking about some guy falling through a black hole for eternity, no, it's the it's it's the silver surfer. <laughs> Well, this this is the question that get gets down to in all Catholic catechism classes. Sister, will there be sex in heaven? <laughs> yes. Well, I think the end is going to be an individual thing, whether it's 2012 or, say, the end of Pompeii. For everybody <coughs> for whom it was the end in Pompeii, for some it may have been ecstatic, and for others it may have been terrible. We all face it individually. You can't predict. The bar does. So what you're saying is that it's the accumulation of fate. It's really your your what you did before that ultimate moment. The end in the way that 2012 will come about, or the way it came about in Pompeii, or any other end ending. Uh, it's all going to be individually, and uh, it depends on what your situation is at the moment. Because there'll be a grand moment. You know, you have, may have a beautiful high. Somebody else may be in the depths of depression. That sort of thing. Well, so what you're saying is it will come like a thief in the night, right, exactly. unannounced. This is what Christ yeah. told Nicodemus. He said, I will come like a thief in the light. No man will know the moment of my coming. Blake talks about this. He says, though, though Satan's watch fiends shall search through all eternity for the moment, they will never find the moment. Apparently, the moment is a very big deal. That's why it's interesting that this all devolves down to a moment. If you're interested in this kind of thing and want to keep your psychological wits about you, read When Prophecy Failed. It's a wonderful book about a flying saucer cult that comes to expect the end of the world and has been infiltrated by two Stanford sociologists who then observe what it is like for this very, very devoted cultish group of people to be disappointed to have an extraordinary disconfirmation of their theology and what they do about that and how they react to it. In 2012, December 23rd or something? <laughs> well, people ask me, you know, what will you do if nothing happens? I am not a believer. I want to keep this tar baby definitely at arm's length. I think it's very interesting that I have this idea, very interesting that the wave conforms to history, very, it's all weird, I grant you. It's like being trapped inside a science fiction novel. But uh, 
I could go through December 21st, 2012, have absolutely nothing happen and say, well, that blows it off. Let's go have some coffee. Uh, and my, I, my 65th birthday will occur 30 days in front of the date. So I will just gracefully retire. I think that would be the, <laughs> the decent thing to do at, the, at that moment. Just say, you know, it's been nice. Uh, <laughs> Surely you didn't take it serious. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that's really impressed this weekend has been your kind of encyclopedic knowledge. And, and one of the things I'd like to ask you is, what do you read to get the news? <laughs> oh, what do I read to get the news? What, what do you read? How do you, how do you get all this information? Well, for instance, uh, the best thing to read to keep abreast of science is science news. It's totally unpretentious. It's nuts to subscribe to nature or science. They cost $100 a year, and you cannot understand a word of it. And so you read Science News, which comes out once a week and tells you things months in front of everybody else. I subscribe to Archaeology Magazine, Astronomy Magazine, On Our Backs, uh, just to keep in touch with the lesbian erotic literature front. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> very important. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And let me see, what else? I, um, I, I, I'm a, I've for 20 years been a member of the Society for the Study of Alchemy and the History of Chemistry, so I get ambics. Uh, I don't know, a lot of information flows through my scene. People send me stuff. There's a very lively underground press, you know, psychedelic illuminations, uh, reactor out of Chicago, talking raven out of Seattle, um, a, a very lively English press, music press and psychedelic press. Uh, there's a, a, a very, you know, you shouldn't read mainstream media particularly because there's a much interesting, more interesting strata of information uh, under the surface. Yeah. This question of practicality, how reliable or unreliable is uh, street psychedelics? As reliable or unreliable as the street chemist who made them. That's the problem, you know, when you're confronted with an off-color powder, all bets are off. Uh, because the motivation for making this powder in 99 times out of 10 was to make money. And corners can be cut. Uh, that's why if you really want to liberate yourself from the illegal and toxic cycle of drug production, you should grow mushrooms. Uh, my brother and I wrote a book called Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. If you want to get into alchemy, this is real alchemy. The formula is rye to mold, mold to gold. Uh, you, can, you can take a 25-pound sack of rye, which costs $19.99, and you can turn it into $22,000 worth of mushrooms. Not that you would want to do that, of course. You would want to turn it into an enormous number of mushrooms which you would give to everybody in your apartment building and neighborhood. 
but it was very one of the most satisfying things about my career. It doesn't happen that much anymore because that book is long in the past. But when I first started public speaking, people would come up to me and say, "We just want to thank you for writing." The mushroom book. You kept a family of six off welfare for eight years, and uh, you know. So, growing the mushroom is a wonderful, satisfying thing. I mean, the the mushroom is an incredible workhorse organism. I mean, it will take dry weight of rye and transform it into dry weight of mushroom at twelve percent efficiency. That's just amazing. And, you know, it's short supply in these days, like cleanliness, punctuality, attention to detail, uh, responsibility, sensitivity to small shifts of parameters. It teaches you, it literally teaches you to be the kind of person that it wants to take the mushroom. And it's out of print and can't be found? No, it isn't out of print. It can be found. It can be ordered from a place in San Francisco called Quick Trade. And they'll even take a credit card number. <laughs> so Quick Trade has it. Uh, yeah, some very hip bookstores. Keep. San Francisco, yeah. The Invisible Landscape, which has been very hard to get for 10 years or so, will be reprinted next year from Harper on the 15th of April uh, with considerable new material and revision. When that's done, when all these, when, when True Hallucinations, Invisible Landscape, Archaic Revival, the TimeWave software in the Mac and MS-DOS version, when all that's out there, that's essentially the bit. And uh, I may be considerably less in evidence because I don't see myself uh, as it is. I've given every one of these raps 60 times and, and Paul has, has archived it. And I would like to go off to some uh, jungle or island somewhere and get back into stretching the envelope with these plants and substances. Well, what's going on in Europe is that this very large, intelligent, postmodern youth culture is is sustaining itself uh, and growing, and it has more than the dimensions of a fad. The the house music scene has been around since 88, uh, and it's growing still and innovating still. And uh, it's a very tribal, positive message, and it's very critical of establishmentarian values. It started out as an MDMA-based club thing, and it's turned much deeper much more towards psychedelics. I've given talks like this in Megatripolis, uh, which is a London nightclub in Charing Cross. We turned out 300 people. I talked from 10 to midnight, and then we danced till 4.30. Uh, and this kind of thing, Sasha and Ann Shulgin took London by storm. There's really a, a fertilization going on. There's a similar scene in Berlin, a similar scene in Frankfurt. And uh, 
I think common cause can be made. The Europeans are, are, have a different attitude toward all this drug problem. They see it as a social problem to somehow be studied and solved, not that y- you have embraced Satanism if you smoke a joint, which seems to be the American attitude. And eventually, European attitudes will just shame us into but changing our... Pardon me? No, there is not a drug hysteria there. You can, in a very good Berlin restaurant after dinner, uh, make a spliff and pass it around. And the waiters bring you a silver ashtray as they're clearing the table. I thought that the the legal uh, punishment for for illicit drugs like that was a lot more intense than here. No, no. I mean, the Swiss are talking about giving heroin to 700 addicts, and they just concluded this free needle thing. They're open to experiment, both social experiments with large numbers of drug users and clinical medical work is being done there, being done in Switzerland. Uh, Hans-Karl Leuner is doing work. Yeah. Uh, They have one they've been doing in Amsterdam where they take about 200 people some are inmates, some are college students, some are working class people, some are hippies, various groups of people, and they give them all ecstasy, and somebody will talk and sort of uh, work the whole program or the whole communication into a oneness where everyone experiences that together, and they say profound things happen in the psyches of all those people. Yeah, a lot of things are happening. The, the hemp movement is very strong in Germany and getting stronger in England. So, but you know, my, I believe it, uh, it, that uh, the the boundary dissolving quality of these psychedelics makes them social dynamite, and that the policymakers figured this out long ago, and that this is not a simple, straightforward issue like it's trying to be presented. That they just can't allow these drugs to be legal. They will shift social values too much. They know that alcohol, tobacco, and sugar are much more detrimental than, let's say, mescaline, psilocybin, and cannabis. But this is not an argument about detriment. This is an argument about what social values shall be affirmed and what's suppressed. And alcohol keeps uh, dominance in place. Uh, a a very rote-like, machine-like, assembly-line society can be maintained based on alcohol, red meat, tobacco, caffeine. They don't want people philosophizing and kicking back and getting in touch with their feelings about the system. So I predict that at the very best, there will be a kind of of, uh, permissiveness but no legal revolution is in sight, I think, unless it comes through the hemp argument, simply that we can't afford to let the tax revenue go by and the resource base that hemp would represent, and so we have to change our attitudes on this. We didn't talk too much about women this time. Sometimes we talk a lot about all that, the the major difference between historical society and this archaic thing that I'm so enthusiastic for, I think, was the position of women. That women were that that nature is imaged as feminine, 
and that in the partnership society there was role-appropriate behavior. Uh, obviously, women represent the unconscious and the untamed and the wild side of things, and that's why the control of women is so high up on the agenda of everybody who's trying to hold the line on what's happening. Uh, the more rapidly that women can find their place, the better it's going to be. Then the question is, what is their place? I think feminism, understandably, but nevertheless, did itself no good by deciding that what liberation meant was that 50% of the country's CEOs should be women. I mean, it meant nobody examined the system into which all these people were going to be liberated and noticed that it was a horrible, repressive system itself deserving of of radical reformation. So, uh, but I think the agenda of women seems to be now uh, being re-examined and thought about. I'm amazed at how powerful misogyny is and how politically incorrect the the 90s are from the vantage point of, say, the mid-70s. I mean, like in media, women have clearly lost ground. The bimbo is back big. Uh, how this is to be addressed, I don't know. I think it's all related to, uh, you know, well, here this opens up a big issue, but let me just mention it. Um, Esalen is one of the places which promoted the idea that you can heal various conditions through visualization and imaging, you know. But one of the consequences of that that has never really been dealt with anywhere is if there are images that can heal, then there are images that can sicken. There are images that can make ill. And our terror of psychedelics and anxiety over sex have led us to substitute for those legitimate domains of human experience an incredible... uh, plethora of images of violence and I don't I am a very very strong First Amendment person I don't think anybody should be restricted in anything but I'm I'm troubled by the obvious uh, effect of images of violence on society and women the woman question is right in there as long as we tolerate an unrestrained outpouring of violent images we're undercutting any chance women have of moving their agenda forward and uh, i don't know how you do anything about this Uh, it's a very difficult problem plato you know well, violence without violence to women is like a circus without lions. Violence is code word for violence against women. No, violence is no fun without women, is that what you're saying? It doesn't say particularly. It, 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 yeah. And, uh, well, the, the number of images, I mean, see, we try to pretend that we're not being shaped by our technology, but an average evening of TV brings you 350 images of violent death, death and dismemberment. Well, in a lifetime of 
hunting people down and hacking their heads off, you wouldn't see that much violence if you were in a media-free world. So what is the hell is going on here, you know? It's a... It's that somehow we're anxious about sexuality, so no, no, there can't be any of that. And we're anxious about drugs, that's not even on the agenda. So then the only pizzazz is left in this violence thing, and it's like a drug in that you build up very rapid tolerance, and so then there has to be just more and more of it piled on. And it's amazing to me that this is all done in the service of the ideals of the marketplace. This is all done so people can make lots of money. Uh, it's an extraordinary abdication of responsibility on the part of all members of society that we tolerate uh, this kind of iconoclastic uh, behavior. Anyway, um, that's why I think of television as a drug and a very insidious drug, a drug you can program um, I mean, a drug you can buy time on for your message. And yet, you know, millions of people are being warehoused in larval states of mind for <laughs> years and years out there in the flats, uh, just getting those 60 channels nine hours a day, pouring it's into the... I mean, no, it's not. It's no, it's not. Right. <laughs> no you're, there are so many levels of programming. You see, what happened is... Uh, I mean, this is just my take on it, but uh, it was a very traumatic thing for my parents' generation to go through the Depression and then the defeat of Hitler in Europe and all that science fiction stuff about eugenics and what was done to the Jews and all that. And people were just fed up with the 20th century by, ninth, by the time the atom bomb uh, arrived. And what they wanted and what they had been promised by the New Deal Democrats was a paradise. Well, the only way you could deliver paradise in that political context was it had to be an ersatz paradise, a paradise of stucco and TV and TV dinners and tube furniture. And that's what they got. They got an ersatz paradise. And then out of that, come the discontent of their children who see that howdy doody and a water sprinkler on the front lawn doesn't feel like paradise, you know? And, and that is what has driven American society uh, deeper and deeper into artificiality, is the need to supply this synthetic manufactured paradise. That's why the cult of the celebrity and the intense media saturation, and uh, all of this is diversion, divertisement, uh, uh, substitute for a life. That's why what get a life means is go get stoned, go get laid, go climb a mountain or kayak a river, but somehow take back your own authenticity from the people who are peddling you canned experience with laugh tracks, uh, with caffeine augmentation, and so forth and so on. I'm, uh, the real message of psychedelics, I think, is to reclaim experience and to trust yourself 
Your perceptions are primary. Your feelings are correct. Everything must constellate out and make sense and parse with what you know. If you don't start from that assumption, then you are off-center to begin with. And the psychedelics will dissolve the cultural programming that has potentially made you a mark and restore your authenticity. And, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. Whether the only transformation in life is the personal dying that awaits each of us or whether there is a grand opening and opportunity just ahead at the end of history. That's all, folks. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So uh, now I guess I have to ask, have you reclaimed experience and come once again to trust yourself? As Terence just said, your perceptions are primary and your feelings are correct. Hopefully uh, you've already dissolved the cultural programming that you were subjected to as a child. Uh, I can't say what's right myself and what's wrong or you should follow this idea or that. Uh, Heck, I can barely make my own way through this forest of religions, cultures, languages, and ideas. And uh, so I'm not going to be of any help to you in this regard, but uh, no matter what some grumpy old teacher or other person may have told you in the past, you have a perfectly good mind yourself and are more than capable of sorting things out. As I've said before, I'll say again, trust your own instincts. Listen to them and they won't lead you astray. Now, I have to admit that uh, even though I've never bought into Terence's time wave uh, ending date or his idea of the end of human history and the eschaton, but uh, I did like that comment that he made about Alfred North Whitehead's concept about a shift in epochs. Now, uh, that's an idea that I may be able to get behind once I've uh, thought about it a bit more. So, uh, what did you think about that uh, rap about uh, what and when to tell your children about psychedelic medicines? I don't want to uh, get into too many specific details here, but I wound up doing it both ways. Uh, In the early days on my psychedelic path, I was uh, actually a hypocrite and uh, tried to not let my children know about what I was doing. But eventually I learned that, uh, well, they were on to me. (laughs) Kids know everything, you know. So uh, what I wound up doing near the end of my child-raising years is to uh, lay out the pros and the cons of various substances and uh, to be sure that they understood the importance of set and setting, particularly for the uh, first time they used uh, any substance. And uh, my child that received that information from me was uh, over 21 before he asked me to take him on his uh, first trip with, uh, well, first several trips with a couple substances, which I did. And uh, those events remain some of the most important experiences of my life as a father. Now, I realize that uh, many of our fellow saloners have never used a psychoactive substance other than alcohol or caffeine and might be horrified at the thought of parents and their adult children tripping together. But trust me here, the experience is phenomenal. It's truly beautiful. Well, uh, there's a lot more that I have on my mind right now, but I'm going to leave these thoughts for another day and get on with previewing a new talk that I just received and that will hopefully be the focus of my next podcast. So uh, stay tuned for a new voice that will be coming to the salon in the very near future. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. 
Be well, my friends.